Hey, it's Jay. And I think for the most part in our culture, especially the business world, when someone says they're a storyteller, you kind of have one of two reactions, maybe both at the same time. Either you're like a little bit eye rolling, like, all right, yeah, yeah, storytelling, or you start to picture something really big or grand or profound, maybe out of reach. You got to be the keynote speaker on the stage. You have to be a professional whatever the hell a lot of people with a microphone and a camera do these days. Let's say being a creator, you have to speak to a lot of people to be considered a professional storyteller. And that's just in the business world. And then we look outside that world and we see people who are comedians or musicians or actors or you name it. Storytelling and this feeling of bigness or feeling of cliche Ness, can I say that? Stereotypical, like, I roll, I'm um, a storyteller jargon type of thing. Either interpretation doesn't really allow us to actually become storytellers. It, it's like we approach the work with the exact wrong mentality, one or both of those mentalities, if we want to communicate in ways that feel higher impact, that grip people and move people to take some kind of action, actions that we need to build our businesses, to start a movement, to help people, to accomplish anything in our work. And so today, as we move our Signature Stories series, that's a mouthful for you, as we move this mini-series forward, I want to focus on one idea, the fact that we don't need to talk about anything big or do anything big for our stories to contain really big meaning. In fact, I would advocate very loudly for all of us to tell more small stories that contain big meaning and to pull those stories from our own lived experiences. Yes, things that maybe you can't shake from your past or even recent history. Yes, important transformational moments in your life or your career. But to tell a small story containing big meaning could be as simple as, say, walking your dog somewhere, which, oh, by the way, our guest today is going to describe. And so the way I like to think about it is this. People like to say, be your full self or bring your full self to the work. I like to think of this as we all haul with us, like dragging this bag of humanity, this messy bag of humanity with us. We haul that with us everywhere we go. And some people treat it like a gift and other people treat it like a burden. But the thing is, nobody has your specific lived experience. So if you think about AI... AI is trained on an LLM. It's their foundation. But people also rely on LLMs. Bots have large language models. People have little life moments. I know, I'm really proud of that one too. I hope you enjoyed that one. Anyways, we should tell more small stories pulled from these little life moments that reveal something big. It's teeny, it's tiny, but it's profound. It's unthinkable how creators learn to trust themselves more than best practices. I'm Jay Akunzo, and I want more people to make things that matter. So every episode, we tell the stories of people who made the leap between what best practices say they have to do to what their intuition was urging them to try. And I think we can all do that because, as you'll hear every episode, it's only unthinkable till you hear their side of the story. This story is once more about a story because this is episode three of a mini-series called Signature Stories. 
See, of course, I love storytelling. I love to tell them. I love to consume them. But I really dislike the way we teach and learn storytelling. Again, in the business world, most especially. Because it's always an, an abstraction. It's, it's like learning how to run an Instagram ad. It's a list of steps. It's a checklist. It's a story structure. Very rarely do we go into the practice and the posture. It's all about the process, really. But all three pieces are needed to master this craft. And so on Signature Stories, we're asking world-class, inspiring business storytellers to take us inside the telling, the crafting, and the using of one signature story, one key narrative or moment or anecdote that they like to use to help them make things that matter to their careers, to their companies, and to their communities. It's kind of like Song Exploder meets professional business storytellers. And today's storyteller is Jenny Blake. Jenny is a wildly accomplished and very brilliant author, speaker, and podcaster, or as she calls it, an ideapreneur. She self-identifies as an eternal bookworm, and she also calls herself a shamelessly gooey romantic. But she's also an international keynote speaker, a career in a business strategist, and an executive coach with expertise on the systems, the efficiencies, and the career fluidity that she needs to thrive, and she helps others do the same thing in this very rapidly evolving knowledge economy. Jenny is also a former Googler, just like me. I hate saying Googler, but there we are. She's written three books, Pivot, Life After College, and Free Time, and she hosts two amazing podcasts based on those books, Free Time and Pivot. And oh, by the way, if you head over to Free Time, you can actually catch my appearance over there. And totally full disclosure, I have worked behind the scenes with Jenny Blake uh, as she turned to me as a creative coach to help her work through her storytelling and get more passionate replies from her podcast. And I'm so proud to say that her shows have amassed more than 2 million downloads. She is an unstoppable force of light and creativity. And I really, really want you to take to heart what she says today, because, oh man, if it isn't this powerful, tiny story containing massive meaning. Without further ado, my conversation with Jenny Blake. I'm just nervous. You've told this story a million times, though. Why would you be nervous? storytelling guru. And then what if... The, you give me all this feedback, and then I'm going to retroactively regret how I told it the first time. Wait, but times. if you aren't retroactively regretting at least part of what you did before, that means you haven't gotten I any know. better. That's true. I look back at my work all the time, like uh, like someone shares a clip from a speech of mine or something, and I'm like, ooh, I wouldn't do it this. I, I would have totally changed that today. I joke that I've been podcasting eight and a half years. That it's the awkward show, and it continues to be, and that. <laughs> Before I'm nervous, during I'll fangirl on my guest, and then after I worry or think through all the things I could have done better or differently, and it just doesn't go away. <laughs> just, that's it. How do stories show up in your work? How do they support your career and your business? Stories are not my natural love language. Let me start oh. there. I think in lists and systems, and I would rather just give people the list. I like to distill things to their essence and then deliver it that way. And so stories in a way are my Achilles heel. And that's why I'm working with you. That's why I'm in Creator Kitchen. It's not how I naturally think. And I used to feel really bogged down when I was reading business books. And there's always, the chapter was always the same. Start with a story, leave a hook, give some data, talk about all the science, then give the principle, then wrap up with a story. And I just found it so boring. 
But I'll just say that stories are something I have to actively think about, work on, practice, craft. And so, you know, your input along the way has been really helpful, even just giving little storytelling formulas. I do love the like handles to hold on to, whether that's like a quote or a little template or something. I've also heard you describe yourself as a quote junkie. What does that mean? Like you just obsessed with those little sound bites from people. And, and also, do you have any favorites? I started an online presence almost 20 years ago, 2005. And one of my first things I did on my first blog, Life After College, was 100 Things About Me. That's what people did back then. And Totally. I miss that era. <laughs> I loved that era. <laughs> yes. And like, who needs to know 100 things about you? Nobody. <laughs> but I would say I have evolved. I'm a reading junkie and I'm a idea collection junkie for sure. I love collecting ingredients. Like if I'm gonna, now I'm talking to you, so I have all the kitchen metaphors in my mind. <laughs> I love collecting ingredients, quirky ones, ones from all different source material. And then I have a very intricate collecting and tagging system in Notion. So when I'm going to go create, let's say a podcast episode, I feel like I just go into my idea pantry, I pull a bunch of random stuff out and I'm able to stitch together a composite that will include stories, but it will include quotes from other people. It might include a concept I'm learning about. I love a unique combination of ingredients that mm. kind of only my mind could produce. And that's also how I feel I differentiate from AI. I was thinking, oh, I do also have like a backlog of ideas that I log and, you know, it has a link in it or a scratch paragraph of, you know, messy writing or whatever. And before this episode, I was about to draft my newsletter for the week and... I was looking at these ideas and I, I had this thought, I was like, why do I bother? Because I'm just going to write what I feel like writing anyway today. And what I realized is part of my practice is the motion of logging ideas. It's a forcing function. Like now that I know I'm going to put ideas somewhere, I put on, you know, these goggles that are colored certain ways through resonance and storytelling and all the topics and ways I think, and, and I'm trying to help people think and do. And I see the world through that lens and then I notice this thing. I'm like, that's an idea. Or someone says something to me. I'm like, that's an idea. And that motion is itself the reward, I realize, because it sharpens my thinking and allows me to then show up and just write what I feel like writing, which I'm sure is informed by all that previous stuff, even if I'm not like, here's the 10 ideas and I'm taking number six today. But it sounds like you're a little more intentional in looking at that backlog of ingredients and selecting the one to move forward. I've taken a page out of Matthew Dick's book, Storyworthy. He has this practice called Homework for Life that every day capture a couple sentences about even a five-second moment, an aha, a regret, some mini transformation. That can also become the seed of a story. And so I have a daily reminder of my phone that says Storyworthy. It pops up at 4 p.m. And then I have a weekly reminder that says what's true for you this week. Because I also try to dig in and... One of my philosophies of my platform is crazy smart systems, radical transparency, and truth while it's fresh. And truth while it's fresh means I might share something that I haven't solved yet, but it feels mm. true for me. And I think that's kind of how you talk about ideas that bubble to the surface. I like to really surface what's true right now. What am I struggling with? Because yes, sometimes I will share some amazing system that I've solved and here's how I did it and here are the steps. And other times I need to... Maybe tell a little story, girl, <laughs> and then say, and this is currently in process, and here is how I'm processing it. I don't know how it's going to turn out. What were those two reminders again, the daily and the weekly? 
Daily says Storyworthy. Okay. And I didn't make up that term. It's just from the book Storyworthy. Right. And then Weekly is What's True for You This Week. What was the most recent of each of those for you? Well, today I was chatting with Michael, my husband, and he said something reflecting on a line that I share in free time, stress is a systems problem, at least business or creative stress. And so I said to him, well, when the student is ready, the system appears. And I thought, okay, that's a good little nugget. And then what's true for me this week? Oh, it's been a doozy of a summer riding all kinds of financial roller coasters from the last few years, but lost one of my biggest clients this oh. summer. And now some people, my, my business, inner business police correct me as have friends saying, you don't really lose them. Like it's best for both of you or you're going your own way anyway. But it was a big blow and it was a big financial hit. Like I got the news from that client that we'd worked together almost eight years. And then two days later, another proposal from another big fancy brand client that had been out for almost a year, they came back and said, we're going with another vendor. Mm -hmm. So it was two in one week. I felt sick to my stomach. And so that has sparked a lot of truth this summer. <laughs> and this week's truth was, holy shit, I made it through July. Like I paid the bills, the mortgages set for August. Like it is one day and one month at a time right now as I try to redesign what's next without going back and getting a full-time job. And so that's what's true for me right now. It's just this intricate puzzle of trying to puzzle into what's next. Thank you for sharing that, especially that truth part. Both of those are so fascinating. And I just want to let it be known to anyone who happens to find this episode now or in the future I've been independent at this point for seven and a half years, which is crazy to believe. I have probably decided and started the process of looking for a full-time job three times. I think the closest I ever got was not even during the pandemic, but after it. Because during the pandemic, I really, you know, like companies were not necessarily hiring, but also I was not in a place to commit to anything. I was working half-time and watching my daughter half-time. And but the aftermath of the pandemic, when things started to settle and you start to pick through the rubble of your own business as a yes. keynote speaker, primarily back then, then it was like, well, now I have two kids, not one. Now I have a mortgage, not a rent. What am I going to do? And I remember I had this one interview where I was being interviewed for a rather creative role. It seemed to fit me, even though I had really good trusted mentors and friends saying, maybe don't, Jay. I was like, I at least have to see. I just have to go through this process. And then I found the piece of the process that showed me I was making a mistake. I had a manager who should have asked me this question because they were a mid-level manager and I would come in as an executive and they said, Jay, what is your management philosophy? And I had one of those moments like the bouge noise from a film or TV show it was like, Boo! and I had like tunnel vision and I suddenly like floated outside my body and I was like, I'm making a mistake because I wanted to say yes. to that question, my management philosophy, um, don't manage people. <laughs> none, none management philosophy. Yeah. So I just, I wanted to put that out there to A, reciprocate your vulnerability and B, I don't think people who have independent businesses with public profiles let on enough just how much we go through that. So others who are starting or even others who are persisting for many years, they think it's just unique to them. And I just want to be here with you now and tell people listening, it's not. We all go through that. I really appreciate you sharing that. I feel like nobody wants to say it out loud because we don't want to, at least I'll speak for myself, I don't want to become a self-fulfilling prophecy where, oh, I'm such a disaster. Now no one really wants to work with me. And I know that a risk that I'm taking in my personal storytelling, also inspired by you, is that 
Well, I might turn off future corporate clients. They might see that I'm not writing for them right now. They might read that business is slow and think, let's bet on a different speaker horse. And just for the first (laughs) time, I think with such dramatic events happening, I just feel like, read the room, JB. (laughs) Read the room, (laughs) adapt, do something new, take it as a sign. And so I have to say, as much of a roller coaster as it's been, I do feel much lighter and freer and more creative. Jenny, you have a way about you, and I know you well enough that you're either going to blush or push back on this, but please don't. But you have a way about you where you can wade into the difficult stuff, the tension that you are feeling or you know others are feeling, and not use it the way a lot of other people in business use it. A lot of other people in business use it to promote fear of missing out, FOMO, to promote you are less than. This is why I can't really stand a lot of the long-form business or success interview shows, even though maybe the host isn't intending this. They just make me feel bad. They make me feel less than. They no longer make me feel inspired. I don't know if that ever tracked to how you see yourself as a storyteller, but that's what I was taking away from that previous vulnerable moment. And I will add to that that I think a lot of those shows, the turnoff for me is the obsession with peak performance, whether it's how to show up every day in this most impeccable ultra habits kind of way, or it's like peak business success with a capital S. And I've I've been very clear to scrub most of my books of the word success at all, because I think it's so relative. And I think that for those of us like that are attracted to craft and quality and connection and resonance and all of that, those just aren't the goals. So to wave these big fancy status flags just doesn't interest me. I'm so much more interested in these moments. How do we figure things out in a very values aligned, connected way? Yes, I love that. Well, that's a great segue, I think, into the story that you brought to us today. What is the story about? And what are some standard ways you tend to use this story in your work? The story is about a morning walk with my dog, Ryder. He's a 100-pound German Shepherd. We encountered a art installation at Morningside Park that stopped me in my tracks. It was spring of 2021, and it's big. The statue is enormous, mm. and it struck me, and it made me happy every single day thereafter that I saw it. They've since moved the statue, but it lives on in my speeches. Actually, whether I'm giving a pivot, keynote, virtual, or in-person, Even now when I deliver free time related content, maybe I'm just falling back on it as a crutch because I don't feel I have a stronger story yet, but I tell it as a way to offer different perspectives on a familiar idea. Okay, got it, got it, got it. All right, well, when you're ready, the story. Oh gosh, see this makes my stomach (laughs) flip. Okay, (laughs) shoot. As soon as I said yes to this, I thought, why did I say yes to workshop a story with the master of storytelling live? We can, we can absolutely just celebrate it. (laughs) No, I'm being a wuss. I'm being a total wuss. Okay, (sighs) don't judge me, listeners. Okay. I'm walking with Ryder, we're on a walk, and we stumble upon this. And I click and I show a slide. The art installation is called Reclining Liberty. It's an enormous statue of Liberty laying on her side. And it's done with all the materiality and the colors of the kind of mossy green of Lady Liberty that's standing proudly in actually the New Jersey side of the Hudson River. And it stopped me in my tracks because... Lady Liberty, we know, stands for liberty and justice and striving, and it's welcoming people to America's shores, and it's about ambition and the American dream. 
But this art installation that went up in the park in 2021 was symbolic of a few things. The artist, Zach Landsberg, wanted to convey two things primarily. One, thinking of the reclining Buddha. What if Lady Liberty was in fact relaxed, laying on her side? What if she could take a break? And two, the collective exhaustion that we were all feeling at that moment, that sometimes we need a break. And we've all been carrying so much the last few years. And that continues to be true today. And I love this. And then I show a picture of Ryder, who's, like I said, 100-pound German Shepherd looking tiny, walking in front of this reclining Liberty statue at the park. And so even with free time now, I've tied in a third offering, which is what if as business owners, we could relax a little bit? What if we could let go of having to do it all, of having to aim for peak performance, aim for status or success or all the things or carry it all on our shoulders? We're already carrying so much, especially if you're a business owner and a breadwinner. Then the pressure and the uncertainty and the complexity is almost crushing at times. So this is an offering of a different way of looking at the world, a different way of being in the world. That was incredible. As as a, you were literally, to use my analogy from before, handing the audience the goggles, right, colored your ideas, so now they can see their own work and or the rest of your material that way. That was great. I feel like I have anecdotes. Like, oh, we stumbled upon yeah. a statue. But it's not really a story. It's, there's no beginning, middle, and an end. It's an anecdote. It's a moment. That's a really interesting point. You may have caught the masterclass I gave on personal storytelling in, in the creator kitchen, like the four ways you could say something, instruction, which is just flat, like do this, then that, then that, instruction, flat prescription, no story. Then you have illustration, which is like, I worked here, I did this, I am the avatar for what you want, I am the case study, or they are the case study, if you're not telling it from a personal perspective. That's a totally viable way to teach, but I do think it can be kind of limiting because you have to be really clear of how this goes beyond who that person was or who you are so that, you know, take into account biases and time passing and all these contextual variables that like the receiver of the story may start to put it at arm's length because they're just not clear on, well, this is nice because it's Steve Jobs. Once again, their story of Steve Jobs, but that's not, not Steve Jobs, right? Like it's easy to have that reaction even when it's not something so, you know, legendary as that. So that would be illustration. And then we talked a lot about using your stories or other stories as metaphors and allegories, because both of those things are to deliver a message or an insight. And I think that's what the anecdote is almost like the starter for. It's like you have this little anecdote and all it would take is, if you want to keep it short, is just that structuring of it. Like this happened, right? And you take me into the vivid moments of like you and Ryder walking and you encountering this thing, which made me realize, and like this was the aha moment, it lit you up or you kind of like squinted your eyes and looked at it funny like hmm, this didn't make sense it, something was notable so this happened which made me realize and so what this means is now you're teaching to the audience so i think it's like a wonderful way to use those anecdotes of yours like you said maybe i'm saying give yourself more credit because i think it's actually pretty baked well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I love what you said there. And as you were talking, an aha came to me of even before I looked up the artist and why the heck this ginormous statue was sitting in the park all of a sudden, I felt seen. 
there was a part of me that even if I didn't read his artist statement, I felt seen because I was so effing tired. 2020 was brutal in so many ways. And I even had it better than most people. And yet I was utterly exhausted. And when I see Lady Liberty, I've lived in New York almost 12 years. Like I love New York so much. And I also love serendipity signage, like what little quirky signs or things you read on the sidewalk. Or this to me was just this most humongous serendipity signage as our installation. And so I could weave in more how I felt in that moment because the story is the morning walk. And then the meaning that I'm pulling in comes partly from the artist statement himself. And then what I'm making that mean about how how we approach our work and our businesses. Yeah, like you become a more active player in the anecdote. It's not just you were there almost like a reporter observing. It's like, no, how are you feeling and thinking and seeing things in that moment? I think if it's real to you, it's it feels real to others because you're not prescribing. You're just authentically describing how I felt was this. It's almost like the my favorite quote about storytelling that I've said to you several times, Kazuo Ishiguro, right? This is how it feels to me. Can you understand what I'm saying? Does it also feel this way to you? You're inviting the audience to kind of map their own experiences, not of that art installation, but of their work, their lives, how they see and interact with the world to the way you were feeling in that moment. So I love that. Like an evolution of that story is Jenny's emotional state gets Mm -hmm. added a little bit more. Yes. And the reason that that made it into my slides at all is a moment of connection with the audience. In a way, I want them to feel seen in the same way. I want them to see this iconic American, but even globally, we probably know this statue and we know what it stands for. And seeing her laying on her side in repose or exhaustion, knowing they're all probably tired and more tired that they're letting on in a corporate context and I want them to feel the same thing, like that sense of relief. I'm not alone. I'm not the only one that feels tired right now and is still trying to do my best. And I'm still exhausted, practically laying on my side when the world is used to seeing me upright. Do you have other uses for the story? I mean, I'm thinking of people who are not speakers and authors who might be listening, who are like, it's fine if you're waltzing onto a stage virtually or in person and opening with this anecdote to ease people into almost like a cold open of like, here's this thing that's thematic of this speech. But have you found yourself reusing this anywhere else? Sometimes I try to avoid overly polished story stones. Whenever, you know, we're working on something like a book, even a podcast episode, there are certain stories that get edited, edited, re-edited, polished, published. And then having been on hundreds of podcasts, it can be 10 years later and somebody says, so tell me about the moment you decided to leave Google. And I go, all right, here we go again. And I almost cannot muster anything fresh because I've told the story so many times. The stone is too polished now. It's too slippery. It's too shiny. And I feel like it doesn't resonate. So then I'll try to shorten it. And my practice is I try to, that's where the truth while it's fresh comes in, where I try to say, let me actually not lean on the regular old stories, but what is the what is my personal storytelling formula? So I love New York City. I love serendipity. I love my dog Ryder. Like actually a lot of my stories could follow a very similar arc to the one I described. Yeah. For example, yesterday's Substack article was I came across a street barrier that in handwritten paint, white paint on a blue sawhorse in the middle of the street said, this is a wonderful day. We've never seen this one before, dot, dot, dot. Wow. Yeah. I'm like, boom, walking rider, serendipity signage right in the middle of the street. And on the other side, two weeks later, I saw try to be a rainbow in someone else's cloud. 
and it just picked me up. I was having a tough day. And so my practice, like a little to keep things fun and interesting for myself, is that if you're interviewing me on this podcast, I actually want to reach for and challenge myself to offer a new little story, not just the same old ones, because I get sick of telling those. It just hits me where I live because when I was promoting the first book, for example, like doing a lot of interviews, especially when it's a business book, a lot of business shows are not as carefully cultivated as some other types of shows. So you get the same questions over and over and over and over and over again. And I feel similarly. And at the same time, I feel this internal tension. I'm, I'm curious if you do too, which is like, well, not that I am this. <laughs> My wife jokes I like public speaking because I can't sing and can't front a band, but wish I could. <laughs> so I like public speaking as a, as a replacement for that desire or dream. But were I to front a band, were I to be in a successful band, people do want to hear you play your greatest hits. That's true. And in addition, the people on this show listening, like literally unthinkable, may not have followed you around all your other interviews. I just think there's like a messy explanation to be had here where it's like I have a signature story list and I can deliver that and customize that to who I'm speaking to, right? I know this audience is a group of HR professionals versus marketers versus independent creators or whatever, or in the moment I'm feeling salty. So you feel more snark coming through the story. There's changes to the story to be found everywhere. But at the same time, it's like I have these seven, eight, nine, ten 10 stories that I know I can tell perfectly in ways that deliver an insight people need. It's the most useful bit of recorded material on the show, perhaps. But then I'm like, but I've also told these stories a million times before. Like, what else have I noticed? Or what new thing have I done in my show or my writing that could bring to this interview now? I don't think there is this like clean response. Because at the one hand, I want to be original and do new things and say new things. On the other hand, the greatest hits are greatest hits for a reason. Well, maybe there's a Goldilocks of storytelling from the pantry. For example, when you emailed for this podcast series, I could have replied in one of three ways. And I thought about it. I could have given you my 10-year-old most well-worn story of leaving Google, like the greatest hit. I could have given you a semi-polished story that I was a little nervous about, the one that I shared about reclining liberty. Or I could have given you something completely hot off the press, like yes. hot mess mode after my biggest client left, which I have not told publicly yet. And so that one's uber fresh, like the cake hasn't settled yet. It's still too hot to eat. It's going to fall apart. I went the middle path. I think it's more interesting to talk about what's happening now, not like a fossilized record that I put in a book 10 years ago. But that's just my personal preference. Yeah. On the subject of that story that you're like, you've told it a, a bunch of times, I think about like what does change or get better for the audience when you do the story a lot, whether it's like every time I give a talk or in my speeches and elsewhere. But like when you roadshow and aerate and pressure test and improve the material, I think one of the things that gets better in for me, and I wonder if this happens to you too, and just using the story of walking rider and seeing reclining liberty you start to find like the three to five moments within the anecdote or story that really need to be like verbally and performatively isolated or amplified because they're so important to having others see what you saw and feel how you felt. So like an example of that would be the moment you came upon her reclining there, right? Like taking yes. me there, amping that dramatic reveal or sight of that statue or the moment you switched because this is a really nice contrast, speaking of using tension, the moment you switch from like admiring it, being curious about it, simply taking it in to like this 
you know, you can hear the music underscoring this moment in the film of like zooming in closer to your face and how you're feeling. I was haggard. I was stricken with guilt and depression and all these things we were all dealing with and blah, 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 blah. And that's when I realized like this statue was the sign. It was the perfect encapsulation of like this macro level thing of like, we think of success and work and being here, like the regular statue of like penetrating the sky and holding our flames high and all these. But honestly, in that moment, all I wanted was to do what she was doing there. And then I thought, well, maybe actually that's healthier, although brought to me by a tough time, maybe in the good times, I should still think that way. Let me explain, right? Like, so whatever the moments are, I find when I tell stories a lot, I sort of give it to you in brief, like here's all the material and I don't really know yet the things that are going to stick with you until people start to parrot back things about the story to me, or I just get to step back and consume it myself. And then I go, oh, okay, I need to like really isolate these key moments and maybe amp the drama a little bit. So I'm wondering if like that has been at all your experience of like telling the story multiple times or if something else came through as ways you improve it as you go. Two things come to mind. First, if I were to really Jay Akunzo it, I feel like I would have built the <laughs> setting. I would have been like, I was having a bad day. I was deeply anxious about how to support myself and my family. And then I encountered something in the park I'd never seen before, and it stopped me in my tracks. And then, but first, and I would like go some new direction. I'd leave this tension, this open loop, and then even come back to it. What we encountered was, and let there be some mystery. The second thing that came to mind is that this is the first time I've told it in an audio only format. I usually have my slides. Mm. And I realized as you were asking this question that it's safe and a little bit of a storytelling cop out that I have the slide in macro behind me. There's no text on the slide. It's just the image of reclining liberty. And I don't need to describe it. Whereas when I was trying to tell you, I had to say a mossy green finish. I didn't know the name of the material that the artist used. If it's stucco, I don't know what it is. I should have looked that up so that I could describe yeah. the material underneath and let people know this was legit. You really think you're coming upon Lady Liberty. And so those are the little details of flourish of description, especially in an audio format that I wish I would have thought through a little more before I told it here. Oh, that's so interesting. And it also makes me think of like how those descriptions, whether you're visualizing it with a slide or you're on a podcast, can actually help evoke and convey the larger message of the story. I'll give you an example. I was watching my favorite show right now is The Bear. I mean, I'm not alone. How'd I but, guess? How'd I know that was right, your favorite was, show? <laughs> it's about making things. It's about a kitchen. Uh, it's storytelling. Anyways, The Bear season two, there's all these moments that I started to pick up on after just absorbing and very much appreciating season one. In season two, I took a more like critical lens of it, not to critique it, but to understand like what they were doing to me and appreciate it on a deeper level. And there was this moment where one character is walking down the street and there's all red lights and all these signs that are very visible in the shot it's intentional when you're editing it you can't help but notice it and setting it up and shooting it you can't help but notice it all the signs say no turn on red no turn on red no turn on red and the woman walks past the no turn on red sign and takes a right down the street now it's like there there's meaning somewhere in there that detail seemingly throwaway detail helps convey something about the character the story the moment mossy green statue feels so comfortable and feels so delightful that I almost wonder if you took it in a different direction, if it would maybe convey how Lady Liberty, but more importantly, you and the audience are feeling. 
she looks like she would standing up. You know, it's like that faded green of copper. There's like brown and black bits and cracks and she looks weathered and beaten. That description now conveys something about the message of the story. Whereas if you use mossy green, now I'm picturing someone who looks delighted and peaceful, and all, which maybe is the intention, right? So not trying to be prescriptive, but your explanation before just made me realize is even those tiny details of the story, when you do it enough, are evident to you. And then you can intentionally evolve them to make the story even stronger. Yeah, and even... I show Ryder to give a sense of scale because he looks tiny in comparison, but I would rather, especially on a podcast, say the size of a school bus. I don't, I don't just want to say a huge statue. What does that mean? It, is it eight feet long or is it a hundred feet long? So yes, I love that. And that challenge to set the scene even more and, and be more intentional, even with the description and the juxtaposition. And the other thing I'll say, you were asking about newsletters or just personal storytelling, different use cases. I don't always know what's going to resonate. So to your point, sometimes you do need to put a story out and people write back and they say, this line really caught my attention or captivated me. Or if I am giving a keynote speech, I'll accidentally make a joke. I don't consider myself that funny, but I love when people laugh at something. And then I go, aha, it's almost like the bit revealed itself. And now I'm not going to lie, that bit comes with me to the next one and the next. And so let's say by the 10th time I've given the speech, it sounds funny only because I accidentally said a few funny things here and there that I took with me into that 10th time I delivered it. It was like profound and powerful and seamless. There were no filler words and it was funny and it seemed so natural. And someone gave me advice many years ago that the speakers and storytellers that seem the most natural and open in the moment are the ones that are actually the most rehearsed. Oh my gosh, completely. I tweeted out this visual. Uh, It's basically a U shape. At the very top, the height of either side of the U, you sound natural. And then as you go down and descend that U shape, it's like you're rehearsing, you're rehearsing, you're rehearsing. Now you're starting to sound unnatural. Right. right? But then as you rehearse enough, you get to this moment of payoff where you start coming back up the U and you sound natural again. But the first version of you sounding natural sounds sloppy and unprepared and like you're reading to the slide and you can't really improvise in the moment because you're so concerned with like the talk track and the content and what comes next. That's not the natural sound we're going for, right? It's the other side of that you, the other side of all that rehearsal, which is it's so internalized. And this has happened to me as a speaker. The AV system could completely shut off on you. This happened to me 10 minutes into an hour long keynote and I can give the rest of it as if nothing happened, right? I don't need the slides. I'm not looking at the slides. The attraction is not the slides. The attraction is also not me. It's the theater of their mind. It's what's happening in your head. You're so absorbed by it that you're just in flow and immersed in it. Well, I can only achieve that if I rehearse enough, right? So when people go, I don't want to sound rehearsed, they're implying like, I've tried to rehearse before. I feel stiff. I feel whatever. So I don't want to sound rehearsed. So they retreat backwards. And I'm going, if you sound rehearsed, it's because you haven't rehearsed enough. Yes. I feel that way about certain podcasts. When they're too scripted, I can't stand it. It almost like betrays the medium somehow. But of course, there are a lot of really highly produced shows. And I know people work with varying stages of a script. You've done a Creator Kitchen video on how to sound natural, even if you're delivering your script, which I think is so important because let me just read my idea to you is not compelling for a podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's so practiced. And I think maybe the thing you're referring to is like, 
you need to play it a little bigger in the moment than you think you need to be because when you listen back, you're actually right in the sweet spot. And, and that's, it's a calibration effort. Like when I haven't recorded stuff in a while, I kind of lose my voice a bit, not physically lose my voice and go hoarse, but I lose my controller grip on this creative tool that is the voice and I need to get it back. And so I record and listen to it and I'm like, oh, I sound bored. But now in the flow of this, I know with very little effort, I am sounding natural, upbeat. There's musicality to my voice. And again, it's a making muscle. And if you're not using it regularly, it does atrophy. You started by saying you're not necessarily a natural storyteller. It's something that maybe creeps in in the back of your mind as you should do it more, but you're not doing it more, etc. So how do you get to the point where you walk up on a stage and tell that story or you come on a podcast and discuss something, but not in flat prescription? If that's not your natural way, how do you get to that, like stepping out over the wire, so to speak, to start being a storyteller? Well, here's a real twist for you. This is now going to take it to the spiritual side of things. The day I'm going to tell it, I, that morning, I actually try to connect with the audience energetically before I'm even in the room. And I just ask to be shown and guided what this audience needs today, what this group needs today. How can I be of service? What do they need? But I will take a moment to try to connect to something bigger than me. And then if I'm in the room, I always, even if I'm speaking at 3 p.m., I try to get there at 9 a.m. when the event starts, be in the room, immerse myself, let the mood of the room wash over me. And when I'm in the room, I also look at their actual faces. And energetically, intuitively, I try to tune in. What do they need? That's what gets me out on the wire is this is in service of this group. And I have a chance here to say something that will move them or give them permission or help them feel relieved or less alone. And I am a messenger to do that. So as you said at the beginning, this isn't about me. Thank you so much for listening. I love doing this series and I love this one too. This episode was written and edited by me with production support from the great Alana Nevins. Special thanks to Jenny Blake for her creativity and generosity. If you share the episode, and I hope you do, please remember to thank her too. And if you want to become a more effective, inspiring storyteller in your work so you can resonate more deeply with your words, consider three different projects that I offer. First, my free newsletter, Playing Favorites, where I send a new idea to help you become a stronger storyteller every other Friday. That's at jayaconzo.com, or you can check your show notes for a link. Also linked in your show notes and also on my website is information about my coaching. I work one-to-one with people like Jenny and people like you, whether you're starting out or you're as advanced as Jenny is, to help develop your show, your public speaking, your overall brand. I want experts to step into the spotlight when you have substance behind your words. I also want the way you communicate to matter too, because what you're saying is great, but how you're saying it also needs to connect. So wherever you show up, I help you become a better storyteller through my coaching. And then there's the membership, the mastermind that I run with Melanie Diesel, who is episode one of this mini series. It's called The Creator Kitchen. We call our members chefs because we really want to rely on our vision, the quality of our ideas, our craft, our creativity, 
to produce higher impact content, no more commodity content. And that's what chefs do. We're not just line cooks. We're not just scrubbing the dishes of this content world. We are trying to craft powerful recipes, powerful dishes, delicious dishes that people really love. So that's the Creator Kitchen. It's a mastermind for quality obsessed creators at creatorkitchen.com. Learn more about my newsletter, my coaching, and the membership at jayaconzo.com or check your show notes for a link to it all. I'm back in two weeks with a brand new episode of the Signature Story series. We have a few more left to go, and I'm thinking we might do more even still after that because we're getting great responses. So if you like this series, if you like what we're doing, give me a shout wherever you find me because I'm really loving this. And I think so far anyway, listeners seem to be loving it too. But until that next episode, keep making what matters. See ya.